This is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Your hosts, Sam Harris and Nicholas Farik, digest the most interesting, informative, and topical books, giving you their biggest insights. We expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday. Hey there, listener, and welcome to the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. My name is Nico. As usual, I'm joined by my good friend, Sam. And today, Sam and myself have finished the book Death by Food Pyramids, how shoddy science, sketchy politics, and shady special interests have ruined our health. Written by Denise Minger, who is, um, I only knew this after finishing the book. She's like in her 20s. Uh, which I found pretty crazy. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. I know. Uh, she doesn't write like that. She's pretty good at writing. But anyway, she s- shares her personal story. So when she was a teenager, she fell into the hole of raw veganism after doing quite a lot of research. And so she started trying it out. And she initially saw tremendous health improvements, losing weight, seeing her skin clear up, having like less acne, more clarity, etc., but after a while, she started losing some weight. And when she went to the dentist, he told her that her teeth were decaying like quite rapidly. And he hadn't seen that in a person that was younger than 50 years old. And that's when she decided that raw veganism might not be the right diet for her. And she started to go into uh, a little bit of research on food and nutrition as a whole and to see what has been done research-wise what has been proposed by a lot of governments and if there's any truth to any of those. So that's the very start. And then the first part of the book, she goes into the finding of the traditional food pyramid, especially focused on the US. And it's quite a tough read, the first part. If you ever decide to read this book, the first part is going to make you probably want to put down the book and, and not continue, but it gets better. I promise. But anyway, so she goes into the origin of the food pyramid and she finds that it wasn't found very scientifically. So there was a lot of interest groups that had a big influence on what was proposed to the American public as being healthy. And the fact that it wasn't done correctly ended up resulting in the mess that we see today in terms of health, where more than half of people in the Western world are overweight and almost a third are obese. And in general, we're not very healthy and the original food pyramid didn't really help with that. And so basically she summarizes it. Asking the Department of Agriculture to promote healthy eating was like asking Jack Daniels to promote responsible drinking. And so as a personal feedback on that, I personally remember being taught the original food pyramid when I was young. I still see myself picking off or pulling off the fat from the ham that I was putting on my uh, sandwich, which looking back now after experimenting with a ketogenic diet, which is very high in fats and very high in in animal fats specifically, seems a bit ridiculous. But anyway, that's the first part. Any thoughts on that, Sam? What did you think of of the beginning of the book? Yeah, I did quite like the intro and it was quite funny to hear her story around going into raw veganism and like the sort of the passion that people have for those things. And then like the first sort of health thing, you notice like, oh, this is just like the breaking in period. And then the next thing, and you're like, you just sort of start excusing it being like, oh, great, it must be having such a good effect because of like, I've got bad skin for a few weeks and stuff. And then your hair starts falling out. You're like, oh, I'm shedding new layers and stuff. And you're like, maybe this is a problem. Because <laughs> you tried raw veganism yourself, right? Yeah, for a few weeks just to be like, oh, I wonder what it's like. And it's kind of nice and pretty cool that you can actually eat mostly healthy food and tasty food, but really 
difficult to manage if you're going out a lot and um, obviously just missing key components in like the long term. If you did it for a few days a week, it wouldn't have any bad things on your health at all. I think it would probably mm-hmm. be a bonus because you just force yourself to eat so many different fruit and veg and things. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do that, it's nice. I wouldn't recommend it for life. And I, I've got a friend that went like fully more vegan for a while as well. He also had lots of health problems after a bit and then had to like revise it. And so it was, mm-hmm. was quite interesting to hear. And again, like the whole economy side of things around the food pyramid and how it got put together was quite interesting of, okay, it was, okay, we've got like dairy farmers involved with what they think should be there and, and different types of grain farmers and all kind of having a bit of a weigh in on what they were going to publish and just like the general decisions going on. The political side of it was just really fascinating, although it was a bit of a longer, less fun story. It could have been it. It was perfectly nice to kind of mm. pick out the highlights uh, but mm. reading it was a bit like could have been a bit more fun but yeah, yeah. it was it's nice to have read it for sure mm-hmm. and my opinion especially in that part i found it quite obvious that she's a writer because she tends to construct pretty long sentences which after yeah. a while i found super exhausting especially when she's talking about all the regulations and all the different parties having influence on whatever's being decided in whatever institution in america it was getting quite tiresome just to be able to follow like the start of the sentence through to the end i found that other books use shorter sentences and especially if you're listening it makes it easier to digest mm. yeah well, like there's a really good podcast by planet money on government cheese i think it's called and it's just built for listening to and mm-hmm. it's a really fascinating thing around the whole American dairy system and how like they were having issues so they started doing like government cheese and things and then milk around the systems and it's just really cool I think they, they just overbought so much cheese and trying to get it produced at the end of like having to store it in cave for, for years and like, they would just be handing out five times the amount of cheese you would normally eat for like years at schools and stuff and it was, <laughs> it's a really funny thing but people got into it and it became like a whole cult thing just the way they blended all these different cheeses and people would then like years later be like, oh, I miss government cheese. I want this stuff for my bread and stuff. And it's a much more enjoyable explanation of the weirdness around politics and how your food that gets like put on your plate gets there mm-hmm. um, compared mm-hmm. to the way that she told it. Uh, so mm-hmm. top tip, listen to that episode instead. For the- <laughs> mm. It doesn't mean you have to stop listening to us though. All right, no, <laughs> next no. point. So basically, just to get back on her comments on the food pyramid, in general, what she says is that the food pyramid is not designed to provide you with the healthiest diet. And so that's one big mistake. And it's, it's been revised. And I think the food pyramid currently, actually, I haven't looked it up. I don't even know if it exists still, but I think it's more based on vegetables and mm. less on the grains and all that stuff. So I guess it's, it's definitely better. But Denise Minger, in her book, actually does give some recommendations about diets, although as we'll see, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And so in the last chapter of the book, before the end, in my opinion, it's the best chapter in the book, and she makes a comparison between the three current most popular supposedly healthy diets. And so instead of looking at how they differ, she analyzes the parts that they have in common, which I find quite interesting approach. And so she looks at three diets. So the first is the paleo diet. And so the paleo diet Many of you will probably know it. I used to follow it, and I think I still kind of follow it right now. It's a diet that supposedly mimics the diets of our Paleolithic ancestors. So the hunter-gatherers that obviously didn't eat any processed foods, but that got a lot of their calories from animals that they caught, and the remainder of their calories they got from plants that they foraged. And so it tries to avoid a lot of grains. 
some of the variants of the paleo diets also try to avoid tubers, so starchy vegetables, and also they don't eat too much fruit. And so obviously nothing processed at all. If you find something in a shop and you cannot imagine our hunter-gatherer ancestors eating it, then it's not for you. And so I think in some variants, not starch, but dairy is also not allowed. And then the next, so that's a paleo diet. The next popular diet is the Mediterranean diet. So that looks mainly at the populations, I think, of Crete, an island in, in Greece, close to Greece, which is based on lots of veggies, grains, and olive oils, and not that much meat, but some, uh, lots of fruits. So that's pretty much it. Am I explaining Mediterranean diet well enough, Sam? Did you have a more Yeah, yeah, because Mediterranean diet is a funny one because you kind of think that it's pizza, pasta, <laughs> and... <laughs> All the olive oil and that yeah. kind of stuff, but it is mostly like a vegetarian, not crazy carb heavy sort of thing. But yeah, lots of olive oil and fish, but isn't crazy protein rich mm-hmm. and grains mm-hmm. and, and nice things. So it isn't quite what you get from your Mediterranean holidays uh, <laughs> as such. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then finally, there's a plant-based diet. And so maybe Sam, you can give us a quick roundup of that because I've never tried it, but I think still... Follow that, right? Yeah, so plant-based is, is actually more vegan, no dairy. Mm-hmm. So I'm back to like pescatarian, which uh, pescatarian is a silly name as well. It sounds like you eat only fish, although it means mm-hmm. you eat fish and vegetables, basically. And it's still mostly vegetables. So like, yeah, yeah. So uh my device is mostly vegetables, but basically I always eat lots of eggs for breakfast and then mostly fish as their protein substitute. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm eating... Mm-hmm. Probably a bit more animal-based stuff than normal, but it's fine, <laughs> and, and, and I enjoy it. So whatever. But yeah, basically just trying to plant-based is, is avoid any kind of meat, dairy, mm-hmm. or fish, mm-hmm. and just get as much protein from nuts and grains and things, which can get a bit repetitive. And if you don't plan it out, can mean that you just eat an inordinate amount of peanut butter, which is tasty. And full of healthy fats, but also maybe a bit too much. I mean, cheese is like 25% fat, peanut butter is like 55%. And so if you eat a lot of it, it has a bit of an effect. So the three diets, paleo, Mediterranean, and plant-based. And she also gives some caveats for each of these diets. So first, the paleo diet supposedly follows the diets of our ancestors. That being said, it's actually not very clear what our ancestors ate. That's one. Two, different tribes and populations ate completely differently. That's point two. And three, it's usually also like people overestimate how much meat that our ancestors ate. And so as far as I understood, um, most of their calories actually from plants that they foraged. And once in a while, they managed to catch a large animal, which gave them a lot of meat, which they then, you know, feasted on for one or two days. And by the end of those two days, it got spoiled. So yeah, they usually went back to their plants foods, etc. Mm. Uh, so that's the caveat on the paleo diet, Mediterranean diet, so focuses on veggies, uh, grains and olive oil, but apparently a big part of their food was also snails, which is now conveniently left aside, and they also fasted quite a lot, which is also not necessarily a core part of the Mediterranean diet. And finally, on the plant-based diets, one important thing to note is that no human population has ever lived exclusively on plants and thrived. And so looking back at our past, it's not really clear if it is even possible to live fully plant-based. So these are some caveats that she had. Then she looks what these diets have in common, because all of them have found some scientific 
evidence to be healthy. So people have used all of them to lose weight. They've used them to cure or at least alleviate symptoms of diabetes, heart disease, and blood markers for cholesterol and all these kind of things. There's some good to all of these. And so in general, what they all do is they avoid refined flour, they avoid refined sugar, they avoid processed vegetable oils, they avoid anything coming in plastic or in tinfoil that you can microwave, and they avoid anything too processed, which in general is, I think, something that everyone who has been into food and diet can agree on, that these things are, are usually better or you shouldn't eat too much flour and sugar and all that stuff. What are your thoughts, Sam? Do you eat a lot of pasta? No. We mean to start eating a bit more of it, actually. It's nice. I really like it. Uh, mm-hmm. Mostly of an evening, I'll just cut up a load of vegetables, usually like maybe some sweet potato as the carb to go with it, and just sort of shove it in the oven. And it's pretty tasty. Kind of lazy. If I had like a slow mm-hmm. cook or something, I might do some other things, but I don't. But yeah, definitely as a take-home, point too many of like all the different refined things. For sure, and uh, she did go into like the plant-based diet, which is certainly missing like a few essential proteins. I mean, now like in the modern day, you can sort of replace them just through like protein shakes and stuff. And the other one was some like the essential oils, like the stuff that you'd normally get from like cod liver oil or eating fish and eggs. You can now get like algae-based versions of those oils, which you just pay a little bit more for to be like mm. fish-free oil supplements. But you can get around the things so like i guess like b vitamins and iron is like another one that can be a difficult vegetarian switch if you sort of really make a point of it's okay we got my like genes tested and i actually have a low ability to absorb iron so being vegetarian is a bad thing for me on my iron to uptake but if i just do extra supplementing of iron then like it's fine but it is obviously easier to absorb it for normal animal proteins than um, tablets. So you have to be a bit more focused. And like, if I have like an iron tablet at the same time as drinking tea or coffee, you basically rule out your ability to absorb iron whilst you have the tablet. So you have to like try and time these things and stuff. Mm. It's a bit lame. She didn't go into that in the book, but I was just at it. But yeah, it was just nice to hear some like the scientific issues around each problem and how to um, get around it by being a bit more normal with your diet (laughs) rather than extreme, basically. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so after analyzing these three very uh, famous diets, she went on to talk about the research of Winston Price, who was a Canadian dentist and who he lived in like 19th century and a bit into the 20th. During his career, actually, at some point, saw that from one generation to the next, the tooth quality of people started declining massively. And he started researching why that was, and he actually found that. It was probably related to the new modern diet that was being followed by a lot of people all around the world, and especially where he was living in the US or in in North America. And so he started researching different tribes and seeing where we went wrong. Because he also found that he worked with Eskimos, or he found a doctor that worked with Eskimos. And so the Eskimos that were following the traditional Eskimo diet, which was, I think, largely based around like seal and fish, not a lot of vegetables, etc. He found that in those populations, there were no instances of cancer or any other cardiovascular disease or any other diabetes type disease. But from the Eskimos, so the same population that actually started following the modern diet that was introduced by Western people and from the Europeans in general, he found that though there was suddenly was like a super high degree of cancers and other non-infectious diseases. And so there he started researching these ancient 
tribes and especially what these ancient tribes were eating and so he went from Eskimos to the Hadza that we saw in in the book mm. Burn that we discussed last time um, he also researched I think some Amazonian tribes some tribes from the Alps some Scottish tribes etc and so there he found some similarities and I've, I've noted them down so I can go through them but in general what they found is that a lot of focus was put on good sources of fat soluble vitamins and so those can be found in organ meats and offal, um, in high cholesterol shellfish and fish eggs, in insects, in bones and bone marrow, and in high fat dairy. So all of the tribes discussed that were found to have like very good health actually had like one source of fats or one very good source of fat soluble vitamins and that they praised very much. And they would worship the cows that made the very healthy high fat dairy or the high fat butter that they would consume. And so, yeah, that's one thing in common that they found. And they also found, Sam, that might be relevant for you, that um, the tribes that lived near coastal areas, they were especially healthy. So he was very surprised by their physique. And those were the ones that ate a lot of shellfish and fish eggs. Uh, so apparently that's supposed to be good for your general health. And so the prize, the, the guy that researched all the tribes, he found that no tribes have been found to eat purely plant-based. So Sam, this is for you. But many of them eat starch-heavy diets supplemented by tiny amounts of fatty meats. And I think this might be useful for you. I mean, you can thrive on a plant-based diet as long as you supplement it with some type of, in this case, animal fats. And I guess it would work with the fish eggs as well. So, yeah. yeah. Do you eat normal eggs? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And so she ends the book, and that's the best part, in a general summary of what have I learned through all my research and what are some almost objective truths about diets and health? So the key takeaways are first eliminate refined carbs, which makes sense. Eliminate refined sugars, makes sense as well. We knew that. Eliminate high omega-6 vegetable oils. So as far as cooking oils go, um, avoid the ones that were highly processed, like corn oil, for example, because those are high in omega-6 and have been linked with a lot of cancers and other diseases. Then secure a source of essential fat-soluble vitamins. So those could be the ones that I list above. So shellfish, fish eggs, high-fat dairy, organ meats, cod liver oil. And so you don't have to have like a ton of those. It's okay to have small amounts. Next point, find nutrient-dense foods from the animal and plant kingdom, including seaweeds, fruits, berries, vegetables. And for animal foods, it's better to replace muscle meat by nose-to-tail eating. And so they, they actually price, so the researcher, the Canadian dentist dude, he found some tribes that actually threw away the muscle meat from the animals and only ate their organs and other like bone marrow and all that stuff. And basically it's really funny because we only eat uh, the muscle meat from the animals. So they would throw the very nice ribeye to the dogs and just eat their whatever brains and livers. And then finally, one super interesting point it's respect your genetics, in which he makes a case for the individuality of diet, which says that people actually differ and there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to diet. So just the fact that a government attempts to make a food pyramid doesn't make any sense, especially not in the US where so many different races live together. For example, I'm of European heritage and it could very well be that I'm very bad at processing rice because my ancestors never had to process rice and the same for asian people they never drank a lot of milk for example they probably didn't eat a lot of wheat so they should probably stay away from or it could be that they can't process wheat and bread or lactose and they 
might be better off focusing on rice in their diets because that's what their ancestors have been eating for years. And so in general, uh, we can go through a list of individuality, like factors that make one person differ from another. But in general, I think it's, for me, the biggest takeaway is that there's no one size fits all. And it could be that one of your friends loses a ton of weight on a low carb diet, while the other one is eating only plants and also feels amazing. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And same with Kate, like some people are just much better with high fat and mm-hmm. others aren't like... I literally couldn't have butter on my bread and stuff and hated anything with cream as a kid and just never found mm-hmm. fatty things that great. It's like a reaction mm-hmm. and like I can eat it now, but I don't enjoy it and stuff. And I just don't mm-hmm. think that I could. It's probably like the thing for me and did find keto a bit of a weird one. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I tried keto for a while and I found it pretty doable, also pretty mm-hmm. tasty, but I found it uh, suboptimal for physical performance. So I noticed that I didn't gain a lot of physical fitness measured by my CrossFit stats and performance yeah yeah so um yeah mine slid off a cliff like the first few weeks i was okay but um i need to put that on instagram actually so i had been doing like a monthly progress thing i think coronavirus where i didn't move for two weeks and kind of ate shit like had a better effect on my body than (laughs) than the um uh uh, keto keto. diet (laughs) yeah that's funny it's funny yeah yeah. All right. And and then, so one last takeaway that she has is that you should avoid to fall into group thinking and don't become your diet, right? And mm. I think that's today on social media, it is quite extreme where you have like different camps and, you know, they cherry pick the evidence that proves that their camp, their type of eating, whether it's paleo or vegan is the best and the healthiest and better for everyone. Um, and so she says that you should absolutely avoid that. Just find what works for you because we're all unique. And so basically what, what I would do is the anti-fragile approach, which is experiment, you know, try a diet for a few months, keep track of your blood markers, see how you feel. And if it feels good, then that's perfect. Then you find something that works. And if it doesn't feel good, feel free to explore other types of diets and, and start experimenting a bit more. Yeah, definitely. Maybe last points that I would like to make, like formally on the book is where she talks about individuality. So for some people, it might be hard to believe that People really differ in the way they react to different types of foods and diets. But she gives some different points. Like, for example, amylase, it's a compound found in your saliva that breaks down starches. And so the amount of amylase, the concentration of amylase between people has been shown like to have huge variety. And so that can have a huge impact on whether you can thrive on a starch-rich diet or not. Another example is APOE which is some kind of compound that plays a role in lipid metabolism. And that may influence how you respond to dietary cholesterol and saturated fats. So Sam, you might actually have like a different APOE percentage Mm. or whatever than me, because I freaking love butter. So that might be a difference between you and me. And there's obviously the lactose intolerance, which is also like for some people, they can't have milk and some others, they don't have any issues drinking milk or eating dairy in general. And then finally, to come back to the book that we read a bit, like a few books ago, which is the Gut Flora Individuality, which says the same, that our gut flora are different and they react differently to the things that we eat. And so again, you cannot make one dietary approach that will fit everyone because everyone is different and people need to figure out their own gut flora and whatever feels great and makes them feel great. So yep, that's a bit of a summary. So in general, people are unique. So experiments with your foods and in general, there's some key takeaways that we went through, avoid sugar, carbs and all that bad stuff. Any big takeaways you got from the book, Sam? I guess like a similar 
of the Dunning-Kruger effect around um, people that often don't know very much that just get super excited about one specific thing will shout the loudest mm. even <laughs> because they haven't actually sort of bothered to look at all the evidence and when they have mm-hmm. they usually have something that isn't worth shouting about <laughs> that is like just be sensible do the kind of thing that your mum tells you kind of thing and I think that's about the end, which you sort of went over anyway but it was another healthy reminder of that mm. yeah in general I found that some of the information from this book pointed back to my idea I don't know if I because I've talked about this quite a lot in the past weeks, not necessarily on this podcast, but I have this idea in my head that I got from the book on longevity, the book on metabolism, um, and this book as well, that there's this kind of trade-off between short-term and long-term health, mm. which basically means that your body has two kind of states, very broadly speaking. There's one is like the thrive state, and the other one is the survival state. And so if you're thriving, your body's going to focus all of its energy and attention on your reproductive system. And it's not going to put that much attention to making sure that you can reproduce in the future because why reproduce in the future when you can reproduce now, right? And so that means your cell like maintenance is going to be lowered. They're going to repro- like they're going to copy themselves more often instead of making sure that, you know, that like unhealthy cells are I don't know, killed off and, and removed from your body, etc. And then the other state is the survival state, which is the opposite. So you're actually in, in pretty tough times. And so instead of focusing energy on reproducing, your body's going to focus energy on making sure that you can reproduce in the, f- in the future. And so there are more energies going towards maintenance and repair of your body. And I think being in the survival state might actually be the best in terms of long-term health and longevity. Do you have any thoughts on that, Sam? Yeah, well, I'm inclined to agree. It's definitely, it's come up in a few different places around sort of survive or thrive kind of theories. And yeah, you can basically be a bit less optimal for reproductivity and things, but more focused on sort of lower energy states where you are just prolonging everything and you focus much more on like self-repair where otherwise your resources go in towards like reproduction and stuff, as you stated, which... um. Mm. It's kind of annoying on like the whole, like, I mean, I want to go to the gym and be like sort of super healthy and my body's going mm-hmm. to be in the more like thrivey reproductive state. And I'm like, well, I also would like to live much longer and, and stuff, but mm-hmm. you can do some of these things with like micro fasting and other supplements and stuff can sort of help a bit. Being a bit more mindful about trying to like, yeah, have a day off a month or a week from food sources and things, which mm-hmm. I go through phases of doing well. Have you tried doing any like five-day fast or anything yet? No. My longest fast that I did was the one I think with you, which was like 36 hours. Yeah. But thanks to the books that we've read in the last while, like I've been way more chill about not eating and not having enough food. I used to stress out like crazy when I didn't have enough calories or enough protein. And I was like, fuck, I'm going to lose all my muscles and all my progress and all that stuff. And I was stressing about that. But basically now it's pretty cool. If I eat too little, I'm like, ah, oh, this is good for my longevity. And if I eat too much, yeah. I'm like, oh, this is good for my physical performance. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of satisfied with whatever I do now, which is kind of nice for my mental state. Definitely, which is also super important. Exactly, yeah, she also said that in the book. Yeah. Just to get back on this point a bit more, I find this out today. So I was just thinking about the fact that if you want to build muscle as a man, you basically want to maximize your testosterone production. And so there's a link between testosterone production and muscle growth. And that's why a lot of illegal drugs, steroids contain like just testosterone or, or variants that will boost, you know, your muscle production. 
So I figured, okay, testosterone must be highly linked to the thrive state of your body where all of your energy goes either to, you know, looking good, building muscle and through to your reproductive organs. So your testicles, etc. And then I figured, okay, could there be an inverse relation between testosterone and longevity? And then I decided, okay, who has a low level of testosterone? And I figured, okay, eunuchs, you know, people that have been castrated or men that have been castrated at a very young age might be interesting. So I, I Googled eunuchs longevity and I found that they did research on like ancient Korean eunuchs and they found that these eunuchs lived between 14 and 19 years longer than average men. Jeez. Exactly. Wow. That was, ins yeah. I mean, I read that and I was like, holy crap, I might be onto something. I don't know exactly. There might be a case to be made to like, once you've decided, okay, I have two kids or three kids or one kid, whatever, I have enough kids yeah. to get castrated and make sure that, because I don't know exactly how castration currently works, but I think what happens is like the tube that links your testicles to whatever conduct that brings the, to, yeah. to, you, to whatever the rest of your sperm, they basically like tie a knot into that, which makes it also yeah. re reversible. And I don't know if, if that has the same effect because I, I actually believe that still makes your body keep on producing testosterone. So I actually wonder if there's any other way to, you know. Well, I mean, my cousin's had his removed because he had cancer and he's uh -huh. got like these kind of like soft testicular like <laughs> balls replaced. In oh, that. really? Um, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, which is kind of funny. But Did it um, have an effect on him, like physically? He seems to be all right, really. I guess it's hard to know exactly with, with like um, a study of one because he's getting older at the same time and also recovering mm. from cancer and stuff. So like mm, you true. can't exactly, there's not like a twin of him that doesn't have <laughs> does yeah, yeah. cancer and <laughs> to sort of compare it to. But yeah, you know, he's still got energy, does his jobs and everything and um, enjoys his life. It's not like he was crazy into fitness and stuff before, but he was always a pretty healthy mm -hmm. guy. Yeah, it's, it's something I'm going to look into. But uh, I mean, I feel like we're going off topic quite a bit <laughs> again. Mm. So yeah, that's the book. Let's do some ratings. Sure. What do you think, sir? I am going to give it a 7 out of 10 because I liked all the things it told you. Uh, just sometimes the writing could have been a bit easier going. And I'm not sure I'd recommend it to people always unless they were sort of really trying to geek out about food and things. Mm. All right. Okay, I'm going to give it an 8 I think there were a lot of parts of that could have been shorter or even omitted. I, like, I actually wasn't that interested in the whole politics behind how the food pyramid was invented or established. So I didn't really care too much about that part. But I did care a lot about the last part, the one that we just <laughs> ended up discussing about the different tribes and the recommendations and then the individuality, which I found super interesting. And so for me, I feel like this book is the only book you need to read on nutrition almost because it tries to be neutral and it tries to look at nutrition without being biased by a belief that we shouldn't eat kill animals for for food or whatever other beliefs that others have when they propose certain diets so i found it very good and actually i would only recommend this book when when anyone asks for a book about nutrition in general I found it really interesting and i feel like i can go into any discussion with anyone about nutrition in general, having read this book. So I really like it. So yeah, that concludes this. And that actually also concludes our series on the body, which I'm super glad we did because I've learned way more than I had expected. And so yeah, our next series, our next season, I'm also quite excited about that because that is something that mm. I already have been doing for quite a long time. And so our next series is going to be about investing. And so the first book that we're reading is 
one of the most lindy books on investing that there is. It is called The Intelligent Investor, written by Benjamin Graham. And Benjamin Graham, who was the mentor of the one and the only Warren Buffett. And so for Warren Buffett, The Intelligent Investor is the best book on investing there is. And so Sam and I will be reading and discussing that in the next episode. So until then, I wish you very well. And thanks for listening. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a rating and share with your friends. If you'd like to ask us a question or give us a comment, feel free to join us on Reason. Reason is Sam's startup that is building a social podcasting app. It is a place where Sam and I listen to podcasts and share ideas and insights. It'd be great if you would hang out with us there. Thanks again and speak to you in the next episode. Cheers.